Welcome, John Berry, to our chat with um, the Collective of Post-Growth Planning. It's uh, Christian and Viola. Just a few words to myself. I'm Viola Schulze-Dikhoff from TU Dortmund University. And I might pass on to Christian and then further to John Berry. Yeah, so I'm Christian Lamker, Assistant Professor for Sustainable Transformation and Regional Planning at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. Okay, so I'm uh, John Barry. I think I'm the world's only professor of green political economy at Queen's University, Belfast. And I'm also the, uh, the co-chair of the Belfast Climate Commission, which is the first commission of its sort on the island of Ireland. Yeah, thank you very much, um, John Barry, for joining us today. Um, yeah, um, our topic, our heading today is Becoming a Post-Growth Planner obstacles to changing roles and practices. So this is a work we also want to write something on, but we also said it's a good platform to uh, yeah, do some interviews on the topic. And also because our event that we planned was during the ESOP conference, which didn't take, yeah, didn't take place this year. So we decided to do these little interviews. And maybe I just start with our first question. We gave you a couple of questions beforehand, but we can also like go into further topics. Our first question to you would be, how would you describe a today's a typical planner as an individual being? I think an individual planner today, whether it's in a European or North American context, which is where I think most of us would be thinking of planning, but of course planning is a global profession, is that it's largely become uh, uh, to facilitate orthodox capitalist economic growth uh, in attracting foreign direct investment, particularly in urban areas. Uh, sadly, uh, it's also in many countries, certainly in Britain and Ireland, planning has continued our dependence upon the internal combustion engine and cars. I know that's different in, in, in the European context where both of you are. But my view is uh, that I think planners have lost their original uh, goal, which is about social benefit. I, I think for many planners, they may individually feel that they are being frustrated in this public benefit goal because the system they work within has largely become a market oriented facilitator for private development. Uh why is that the case? What would you say? What's the major driver behind these developments in planning? I think in the last 30 years, and again, as a political economist, you need to look at the, um, the, the power of neoliberalism, uh, the way in which uh, the public role of the state has now reduced to facilitating private sector development. Again, uh, this is not the same in every country, but certainly in Britain and Ireland, we are thoroughly neoliberal states. And I think planning has been corrupted as a result of that. So the institution of planning, uh, in my view, has lost its way, certainly in societies like Britain and Ireland, where, where it is, um, as I say, uh, being neoliberalized and the, the public health, the, the public gain, that, that community focus, which was born in, certainly in Britain, out of the, the welfare state after the Second World War, that's the origins of planning in Britain, and I think those uh, initiatives have been lost because of this neoliberal shift in public policy in many European countries in the last 30 years. Yeah, but I mean, we still have many engaged individuals in planning, many graduates of planning schools who really want to make a change. 
why would you say is it so important to understand what hinders planners, planning practitioners, but sometimes also academics to think more deeply in a post-growth direction? Right. Well, I'll give you two. One is ideology and groupthink, and the other is the relationship between structure and agency. So the latter structure and agency is that this is a, 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 a very old issue in social science that regardless of one's individual's motivations, perspectives, uh, values, if you're in a structure where you're being incentivized to think in a certain way, well, it's very hard to make a difference. So in other words, this is an argument against those individualized responses we find on sustainability. You know, whether it's individual recycling, you know, flying less, going vegan. These are all very laudable moral issues. But the real questions are our systems of production, consumption, transportation. And those are the issues that planning should be concerned with. So that brings me on to the second issue that certainly I think there has been a, an ideological shift within the planning profession, partly as a result of this neoliberal turn in political economy at the level of states and so on. And it's also influenced, and I know it's an issue that will come up in your questions, of how planning is taught. I think there's far too uh, much an emphasis. And again, I can only speak from the planning at my university or from what I can see in Britain and Ireland, too much on planning as pro-development, as pro-private sector, as creating the conditions for spatial development of urban areas that facilitate orthodox economic growth, which to me, because I'm a, I'm a heterodox post-growth economist, mm -hmm. and I think planning has become corrupted by not allowing those issues of well-being, of human flourishing, of equality, uh, of inclusion, all of these things are not seen as important for planning as orthodox economic growth. So do you also think it's a question of um, yeah, a person's or a planner's own responsibility? Because that's what we sometimes dis discuss and debate here, like it's the planning system that we claim to be neoliberal, but what's then? How can we like go ahead? So it's probably the question of, am I responsible as a single planner in the system? So what do you think about that? Aye. Well, first of all, I think you should not individualize responsibility. It's not the fault of individual planners for, for a system. So, you know, and I speak as a completely collapsed Catholic, but guilt, which Catholics do very good at, guilt should not be how these individual planners feel. It's not their responsibility or fault. You are the resistance. Those planners within the system who do think differently, and it's wonderful to see networks such as the one that you formed to feel some sense of solidarity that you're not on your own because one of the ways in which uh, dysfunctional organizations work such as the current planning system is that individuals feel marginalized uh, they feel very you know worn down they they feel like they're either pioneers or they're unwelcome and, and it takes a lot of courage particularly if you're a young member of the planning profession to be able to stand up and say you know what, this plan is a load of shite. This is crap. It's, you know, locking us into carbon. It's not, you know, looking at issues of, of, of social engagement or social acceptance. They may think that in a meeting, and it could be uh, both of you today have been in meetings maybe where you thought that but didn't say it. And of course, the reason why you don't say it is because you feel too junior. I don't know enough. I have no power. And I do think that there, there needs to be fora such as the one that you've created, where 
you know, planners who feel this kind of post-growth critical perspective at least have an opportunity to share their frustrations. In other words, I, I think many planners um, are, are not wedded to the current planning system, but their, their job, their career, their advancement is tied up with playing the game. So we need to change the rules of the game and not individualize it. So therefore, I'll go back to what I said, you are the resistance. You know, this is how paradigm shifts um, start in organizations and also in, in knowledge. It isn't in peer-reviewed journals. It's by, you know, concerted individuals working together to transform, often from within, but also with help from without. So the last point I'd say is that it's not only the responsibility of planning professionals to change the planning system, it's the responsibility of citizens, of trade unions, of politicians, of faith communities, of environmental groups. So as you extend out your network, I would include these more critical voices who want to help you. You have allies outside the planning system. Unfortunately, uh, the planning system as it currently is, in my view, is broken. It is completely dysfunctional to face the challenges of the Anthropocene, of climate breakdown, of moving away from carbon, but you're not on your own. You've got allies like me and other professions in the, in, in the academy, but also I think we have uh, movements outside planning. And I, I particularly look to the environmental movement, but also I would say the trade union movement who have really only recently started to really grapple with the idea that there are no jobs on a dead planet. They need to get the planning system to help create the economy of the 21st century. Yeah, so uh, we had a large discussion in Groningen on our planning master programs, especially the one on society, sustainability and planning. So in how far we can, can really teach a critical attitude and attitude that's, that's open for new developments. Um, and it's hard to find good inspiration to really prove why that is so important um, and so meaningful to do, also given established criteria. So uh, would you say there is some inspiration also in your work that we could take up and also pass on, pass on to today's and to future planners especially? Well, well, if you're interested, I've just written a chapter for the Routledge Handbook of Environmental Planning on why planning needs to be post-growth post-carbon and post-capitalism. So there are the three criteria for me that planning needs to rethink itself. And again, it's a, a coming from a non-planning perspective. So it's somebody from the outside looking in, but I understand completely the power and the importance of planning, particularly as we deal with climate resilience. You know, how are we gonna you know, make our cities uh, fit for purpose for the 21st century? when we're going to have to deal with inevitable climate breakdown. You know, there, there's no question we have to adapt our urban spaces. And we do have examples, you know, the way in which in Europe we can see whether it's in your own country, Christian, in terms of sustainable urban drainage systems using, you know, nature-based solutions to drain away, you know, the water, massive increase in the use of cycling as opposed to uh, internal combustion engines. This isn't rocket science, but it does require challenging this idea that the future is going to be like the present, but with better apps. There is no technological solution to this. This is my real fear with some of these crazy ideas of geoengineering, you know, solar radiation management, that that's going to help us solve the climate crisis when actually we need to change our behaviors. 
but we can only change our behaviors when we change structures. And that is the role of planning. You are, you know, tasked with creating the systems of food production and power, transportation, energy. And just on that last point, I think if there's one change that could be made in the teaching of spatial planning is that we must absolutely integrate energy planning and spatial planning. You know, and that at the moment is not really well done because most planners are trained in spatial planning. And that's so 20th century. We need 21st century planning, which is about climate, energy transitions and so forth. And I, I'm very hopeful that, that those younger planners in the profession like yourselves, you need support so that you then can start presenting an alternative paradigm. And, and this is not just theoretical. We know Copenhagen, Amsterdam, many European cities show us, here is the way in which you design you know, residential housing. How, how you can have, for example, in the context of the the COVID-19 pandemic, as cities build back to, you know, look for inspiration like in Paris. The mayor of Paris has this vision for the 15-minute city. Well, that should be, you know, there's an example of how to create a livable, thriving, sustainable city. Um, so for me, I, I'm very hopeful, but I'm only hopeful because I'm a political activist. Hope does not come from passiveness. Hope needs agency intellectual, but also the likes of agency we see in Greta Thunberg, the young people striking, Extinction Rebellion. I am absolutely convinced, as somebody who was a politician, a local municipal councillor for seven years, I'm a former leader of the Green Party in Northern Ireland, the liberal democratic system is broke. It will not deliver in time the changes we need. We are going to need to have more non-violent direct action by citizens to force states to enable planning to be more radical. But also planners need to start being more oppositional in terms of challenging development plans at cities. And I know that's difficult, it's easy to say, but from my view, progress only comes through struggle. And that struggle can be intellectual, but it also needs to be on the streets, in my view, and non-violent citizen action. Well, what could we do or what would you advise to, uh, to, to take up to get the courage to learn from these positive, inspiring examples in some cities around the world and then to take them a step forward in other places and uh, maybe future directions? So how can we find this courage that's necessary to do so? I think you find your courage like we're doing today, talking with each other, keeping up contact. Um, going to talk to your local Green Party and say, why aren't you doing this? You're, you know, in Germany, you're a big party. Why aren't you pushing this? And so on. Those allies you have in the political system. Going to, you know, even though I'm a, an atheist, in many communities, the, the churches are very powerful. Well, go to, like the Catholic Church. In 2015, Pope Francis released a beautiful encyclical, Laudato Si. It, it almost made me go back to be a Catholic, but I avoided it because of their position on abortion and, and women. But everything else was cool. So you go to the Catholic uh, community in your local area and say, hold on a minute. How can you, you know, your Pope writes this. What are you doing as an organization? They are very powerful. They have lots of money. They have resources. Um, they can mobilize people. Going to the trade unions, I think you should um, not see either as an individual citizen or as an individual planner, it's the work you have to do. It isn't. Just go to listen to other people. 
go and listen and, and, and share your knowledge, your concerns. But also it's about saying that your role in this transformation in the 21st century is not just as a planner, it is as a, as a father, as a mother, as a citizen, as somebody perhaps with a pension fund, is your pension fund invested in fossil fuels? So to see that the, the issue here is much bigger because the problem with many people when it comes to this issue, it's seen as so big that they individualize it and then they feel powerless. The issue is to see that there are so many places where you can make progress and often it is about simply listening. The problem with academics like us is that we overthink things and we, we want to try, we, we, we internalize the problems, we have to come up with the solution. Well, I think let go of that. The solutions to these problems are going to be collective and we need to start, you know, having more interdisciplinary discussions. So planners need to talk to engineers, engineers need to talk to philosophers, philosophers need to talk to economists, but not capitalist economists, not neoclassical economists. They, to me, are the enemy. They are the ones that are at most <laughs> are the reasons why we're in this current mess. So for me, I'm hopeful that only through solidarity, through interdisciplinary thinking, through going out into our communities and listening and trying to figure out with our communities, well, how best in München, in Groningen, in Paris can we deal with this? Because each city, each area will have a different response, given its topography, its political traditions, you know, its politics and so on. So for me, talking, as you can tell, I talk quite a lot. We need to not just do what I'm doing. This is the typical alpha male professor, blah, 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 talking. We need to listen. How can we find enough time to listen? Do you have an idea? Well, if you want one suggestion, and for those of you in uh, universities like I am, you, you could do what I've been doing for 20 years, is opening up the university to my fellow citizens in my area. So I bring in, I put on public events, put on movies, um, you know, make it more attractive because for many people, They view what we do as elitist, uh, it's scientific, it's above their heads. And of course, our profession, when we write as academics, it encourages us to be obscurantist, to write in a really technical language that only few people understand. We need to basically unlearn that and start engaging with our communities and use the resources we have. Universities have a lot of resources. It's, they've got good places, you can get some food, hopefully local, organic, and so on. And I think we need to have our universities moving out of the academy by bringing the community in, uh, by contacting your local church, trade union, environmental group, say, hi, Christian here, Viola here, would you like to discuss with me, what would the, asking our community, what do they want to learn? Because we often assume as academics, we know the solution. Whereas actually, I think a much more productive way is for us to ask our community, our civil society, even our politicians, what do you need to know? How can I help you? You know, so I, I think that's what we need to do is that sense of offering our knowledge at the disposal of our societies, because many of us are paid out of the public tax. We are all civil servants. We have a moral duty to give back that knowledge and not just have it in peer-reviewed academic journals. We need that, don't get me wrong, but that's necessary but insufficient. 
thank you very much. I'm already very keen uh, to send on this interview to my students because they just did something very beautiful. They um, uh, closed the street, like a pop-up uh, play street. And it was beautiful because it was like these four people that met online during our online classes in the last semester. And they just did something. They just wanted to do something. And I said, oh, you don't have to do it for the, the, your marks and for this exam. But they just wanted to change something. And they were so excited because they, so many people helped them. They had so many chats and so much knowledge they could gain. And so many people supported them. And I think that's, yeah, you make the point. You made a lot of points. And I think you also yeah, encouraged um, yeah, a lot of people if they will listen to this now. Because, uh, yeah, that's actually what we experienced in the past years. And the more you talk and the more networks you, yeah, you, you gain and, and throughout the whole world, especially. Um, but actually, just on that, that, that's a wonderful, inspiring example of, of the type of teaching we need to do more of. Uh, activist, engaged, where students can see, taste, smell. Because mm. often these alternatives are theoretical. And for many people, that's, that's not good enough. They want to know, how can I live in this green, sustainable, low-carbon world? We say, well, well, here we go. We're going to close off this street. Look how suddenly people's attitudes that are mixing, they're experiencing the spatial environment in a different way. So for me, what you've described there, Viola, is a, a, a truth that we, we tend to forget. The future is already here but it's unevenly distributed. We already have these examples, it's, but it's, it's not everywhere. And I think you need to give people a, a, that, that an alternative to the current system is possible and desirable because for many young people, they, they live in a world where what I'm gonna say is true and it's a terribly sad thing to say. Our young people today, particularly those who are suffering from climate anxiety, they feel fearful about the future. For these young people, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Now, what an awful situation to be in, that they have this apocalyptic view of the future, you know, a million species being lost, climate breakdown, and so on. And that's more believable than us thinking, you know what, maybe we need to change the economic system. And that's, that's something we need to encourage in our students, to ask those questions that capitalism itself, and again, I'm a Marxist, if I'm being honest, ideologically, there's full disclosure, is that we need to challenge that the capitalism is the cause of all of these ecological problems. Otherwise, we're only dealing with the effects. What's the point in cycle lanes if we're not dealing with the issues of the internal combustion engine, the power of global car manufacturers, and so on? It's simply virtue signaling. We need to be really, really clear that this is a large-scale political economic struggle. I'm not saying everyone would agree with my description of it, but for me, that's my view. After 30 years as an academic and as an activist, we need to start naming capitalism as the problem and be unashamed about that. And that's another issue of courage, because I know for many people, even talking in these terms, you'd be as welcome as a fart in a spacesuit. Oh, my God, talking about capitalism, oh. Why? It's the system we live in. Let's talk about it. Yeah, but what I find difficult with students is to find this balance and not to, on the one side, blaming some systematic forces that are outside without then resigning and saying, okay, there's nothing to do. Uh, 
I will continue. Fine. So finding the balance between, okay, there is part in the system that might hinder a certain action, but still I'm there and I can think critically in another direction. I, well, here, the, 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 that's a strategic question, Christian. It's a good one. Is that on the one hand, and I, I, I admire and respect those people who say, John, you're too radical. It's not that we can reform the system. I think that's bollocks. It's not going to be reformable. Capitalism and the planning system within capitalism is extremely plastic. It's extremely uh, responsive. It can absorb criticism and continue, but yet it doesn't deal with the underlying problems. You know? So for me, it is about saying to students up front, and I do in my own teaching, here's my position, uh, full disclosure, here's my ideology, here's my view. Most of my work has been peer-reviewed. You can go and look at it, science-based and so on. So, you know, it stands up academically, but you may disagree and we can have a disagreement about the strategy. But I do think that unless we begin to address these fundamental structural issues, particularly about economic growth, we do not need economic growth in Europe. We are rich already. The problem is that the wealth is maldistributed and that's not a planning issue. So I think planning is not the sole responsibility here, but at the moment, it is a handmade, if you know Margaret Atwood's novel, planning is a handmade to the orthodox market system. In other words, it is colluding with an ecocidal, unsustainable economic model, even though individual planners may not like this. And that is a dilemma. And that's why the planning system and how we teach planning and, it, and its role needs to fundamentally change. If I was to make one suggestion of where planners would find willing allies is in the public health discipline. Doctors and academics and public health are absolutely with this more radical perspective. I'm not saying they're, they're all Marxists, don't get me wrong. Um, it'd be terrible if everybody thought like me. That's what democracy is, you know, nonviolent disagreement. But I do think planning should see as its role that idea of public health, a healthy economy, you know, a healthy community. You know, all of these things, are, to me, are part of what planning should be as it addresses issues of the 21st century, the Anthropocene, and our planetary crisis. Yeah, so then let's just imagine the planning that's somewhat different. Uh, so I will ask you to just finish the sentence, post-growth planning is? Post-capitalist post-growth and post-carbon. That was a clear, <laughs> clear and short answer. So uh, thanks, John Berry. Thanks for being with us. And thanks for answering so many questions and giving us so much input for, for teaching, for research, but also for individual practitioners. Uh, we see many engaged students. I hope they are even more engaged by your thoughts from this talk. Uh, we will pass this video on to our students in Groningen and Dortmund, and hopefully it's also taken up by many more uh, at other places. Uh, thank you very much, Christian and Viola. More than happy, as you can tell, to talk. Um, I'd be more than happy to beam in. If you thought I'd be useful in, in, in a provocative way for your teaching, I'm always happy to contribute. But I just want to let people listening to this realize that it's okay the end of the world is coming, but that's okay. It's only the end of the world as we know it. And that's what we need to let go of, that somehow the future is set by what we currently perceive. 
this is a most exciting, exciting time to be a human being. It is also very frightening of what's going on with right-wing populism, xenophobia, the AFD in Germany, Trump, and so on. Don't get me wrong. We, we're, we're surrounded by a lot of very frightening issues, but it's also exciting. Human beings in the past have risen to great, you know, uh, you know, achievements. And I think that's what we need now. The most important thing, particularly with teaching students, is to give them hope. But hope is generated not through policy, but through agency. Hope is generated also not by programmatic learning, but by creativity, allowing students to dream and think and practice and experiment in a different way to organize our world. So for me, I wish you all the best in, in the work that you do. It's a great initiative and I'm more than happy to help in any way I can. Thank you very much. These are beautiful words for the end of this interview. Thank you very much. Okay, take, take care both. Have a lovely day.